You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Spiritualism, Madame Blavatsky, and Theosophy. This is uh, Lecture 11, entitled The Significance of the Eighth Sphere, given in Dornach on October 17, 1915. I want to add some things today, and thus fill out these lectures about the development of spiritual life in the 19th century. Ellipsis. We will take as our starting point the fact that the 19th century was the epoch when materialism as a worldview arose in the natural course of progress. As you know, the middle of that century was the time when the whole human race was, as it were, to be put to the test by materialism. Materialism stood on the horizon like a temptress, and humanity fell in love with it. It may truly be said that in the 19th century, humanity was enamored of materialism. And yet we have seen how greatly materialism deserves praise. As a method, materialism made possible the great achievements of natural science. If the faculties of soul necessary for materialistic observation of the world had not been developed, the natural sciences, with all their technical, economic, and social consequences, would not have been possible. Two factors combined to make this happen. On the one hand, human evolution had to progress to the point where materialistic interpretations were inevitable if the study of nature was to be carried to a further stage. Honest thinkers had to arrive at materialism if they adopted certain methods of investigation established by natural science. After all, materialism was good as a method for investigating and observing the secrets of the material world. That was one aspect. The other was that the hearts and souls of human beings were so attuned as to make them love materialism. Everything tended toward it. All the factors combined to put human beings to the test, as it were, through a materialistic view of the world. I have already told you that among the occultists, who, so to speak, had the responsibility of seeing that humanity would not completely sink into materialism, an attempt was made with mediumship, and I showed that mediumship led to aberrations. I have already indicated one of the most significant of these aberrations. It was remarkable that mediums everywhere professed to be able to give information, revelations, from the realm of the dead, the realm where people live after death. Besides all I have already told you, the most remarkable thing was that the communications that were coming through mediums, allegedly from the realm of the dead, everywhere disclosed a strongly tendentious character. If you examine all these proclamations made by the mediums, 
you find that they invariably have a strongly tendentious character, especially where the life of the soul after death is concerned. In important circles, where mediums were used, declarations were made that were the cause of great consternation to the old esotericists, who did not wish certain occult occult truths to be made public. I can indicate the reason for their consternation in the following way. In order to be quite clear about the matter, please read the lecture course I gave in Vienna in 1914 entitled The Inner Nature of Man and Life Between Death and a New Birth. The lectures contain very important facts that emerge from approaching the realm of the dead in the right way by putting oneself into the condition in which they are able to speak to one. But in very many circles where mediums were used, revelations of quite different kind were made. If you peruse the mass of literature compiled from the communications of different mediums, you will, you will discover, especially when these mediums were guided by the souls of living persons, that everything has a strongly tendentious character. Descriptions of the life after death were given that if you compare them with what was said in the Vienna lectures, are entirely false. You will perceive, too, the tendency in the different mediums to allow nothing concerning repeated earthly lives to emerge. Wherever the mediums alleged that the dead had spoken to them, they described the life after death in such a way that the conclusion was there can be no repeated earthly lives. In the development of mediumship, there was the tendency to make false assertions about precisely the most important aspects of the life between death and a new birth, especially to make assertions precluding the fact of reincarnation. It was desired to speak to this effect through mediums. That is to say, certain people who exploited this tendency in pursuance of their special aims desired that revelations indicating there are no repeated earthly lives should be proclaimed through the mediums. The desire, therefore, was to use the mediums to oppose the teaching of repeated earth lives. That was a very striking fact, a fact that caused the right-wing occultists the greatest consternation of all, for they themselves had been a party to the use of mediumship and what it produced, and this was being made to serve tendentious interests instead of the unbiased truth. All these things were possible because the leaning toward materialism was so strong in people. Now, what is seen in the Vienna lectures about life between death and a new birth is irreconcilable with any form of materialism as a view of the world. But people can be materialists in their thinking and give credence to what different mediums have said about life after death. For to do so is really only a kind of concealed materialism that is ashamed of being materialistic and therefore has recourse to mediums in order to glean something about the spiritual world. Materialism was therefore a factor to be reckoned with, and those who did reckon with it fared the best. In addition to all this, there was something else. 
even among those who knew something about the spiritual world's great confusion, had arisen in the course of the nineteenth century with regard to something about which, if a spiritual movement is to make any real progress, it is absolutely essential to be clear. The confusion was due to the fact that Araman and Lucifer were continually being intermixed. People were no longer able to distinguish between them. A principle of evil and the representative of the evil, they understood that, but they saw no need for any sharper distinction. Even Goethe could not distinguish Araman, whom he called Mephistopheles, from Lucifer. In Goethe's work they are indistinguishable, for Mephistopheles is a mixture, a cross between Araman and Lucifer. In the nineteenth century, people had no faculty for making a distinction between the representatives of the two spiritual streams, Araman and Lucifer. I can only make certain statements on this subject today, but later on I shall be able to elaborate them, and then confirmation will be possible. Now, when it is a matter of having clarity about the spiritual world, a great deal depends upon being able to distinguish between Araman and Lucifer. That is why a strict distinction between the figures of Araman and Lucifer will be made in the representations in our building in Dornach. Lack of clear distinction between these two powers leads to a particular kind of confusion in spiritual understanding. If Araman and Lucifer are intermixed, as they are in Goethe's figure of Mephistopheles, the danger is that Araman will constantly appear in the form of Lucifer. There is no knowing whether one has to do with Araman himself or with Lucifer in the form of Araman. Araman wishes to convey untruths by way of the materialistic view of the world. Ellipsis Materialism cannot be surmounted without far-reaching thinking. But when Araman and Lucifer are intermixed, people accept the Aramanic picture of the world that is presented to them because Lucifer comes to the aid of Araman. As a consequence, a kind of longing arises in people to weave certain fallacies in the guise of truths into humanity's conception of the world. A remarkable trend thus developed, namely to harbor fallacies that could flourish only in the age of materialism. One might say the age of Aramonic deception, because Lucifer was helping from within. Araman insinuates himself into the concepts formed of outer phenomena and deceives us about them. We would see through these wiles, however, if Lucifer did not incite us to lend force to certain materialistic facts in our view of the world. Such was the situation in which people lived in the nineteenth century, and those who wished to could take advantage of it. A person able to see through such matters might set out to strengthen some tendency with a bias toward the left. This would not have been such a simple matter if people had not been in a position where they could so easily be misled as a result of the intermixture 
of Araman and Lucifer. This made it happen that certain entirely materialistic natures had just enough of the Luciferic element in them not to believe in materialism, but to attempt to find in materialism itself a spiritual conception of the world. Just think of it. The nineteenth century could produce a type of person whose head produced thoroughly materialistic thinking, but whose heart longed for the spiritual. When that happens, a person will try to find the spiritual in materiality itself and will seek to give to the spiritual a materialistic form. Now, if behind a personality of this type there happens to stand an individual who sees to the root of such matters, the latter has a very easy game to play. For if it is in the interests of this individual, he or she can induce such a person to mislead others into envisaging the spiritual in a material form. Procedures that are calculated to trick those others could then take effect. These measures succeed best when they are carried out at just the right place, when truths are imparted and the door is opened for people to the things they long for. Thus certain spiritual truths could be brought to humankind and a one-sided bias could be oriented in a certain direction. On the one hand, a number of truths with a materialistic coloring, but truths for all that, were communicated. On the other, at a certain place, something was introduced that would quite inevitably lead to fallacy, but could not easily be detected. This was what happened in the case of Sinnott's book titled Esoteric Buddhism. Sinnott wrote it, but behind Sinnott was the one he calls his inspirer, one whom we later know under the mask of a Mahatma individuality. Sinnott was a journalist. He was therefore steeped in the materialistic tendencies of the century. Here then was a personality whose brain tended entirely to materialism but one in whom the longing for a spiritual world was also present. Sinnott, therefore, had every aptitude for seeking the spiritual world in a materialistic form. Thus it was easy for the Mahatma individuality, in whose interest it was to make use of materialism in this way for special aims of his own, to develop an ostensibly spiritual teaching with an eminently materialistic coloring in Sinnott's esoteric Buddhism. Now, you may say, quote, but Sinnott's book surely does not contain materialistic teaching. Close quote. The fact that this is not perceived, there you have the gist of the whole matter. Everything is embellished and disguised and can be understood only when one knows the antecedents I have just spoken of. Of course, the teaching about the different parts of a human being the doctrine of karma and reincarnation, are truths. But materialism has been woven into all these truths. In Sinnott's esoteric Buddhism, a genuinely spiritual outlook is combined with an eminently materialistic tendency. This combination was not easy to detect because there was scarcely anyone who could discern that something entirely materialistic had insinuated itself into a spiritual teaching. 
something that was materialistic, not merely in the intellectual sense, but materialistic as opposed to a spiritual view of the world. Here I refer to what is said in esoteric Buddhism about the eighth sphere. Here, then, are teachings containing a great deal that is correct and into which an utterly materialistic and misleading statement about the eighth sphere has been woven. This culminates in the assertion made in esoteric Buddhism that the eighth sphere is the moon. Owing to its journalistic qualities and the good style, the book was a tremendous draw and captivated many hearts. Consequently, these readers imbibed not the true teaching concerning the eighth sphere, but the strange assertion made by Sinnet that the moon is the eighth sphere. So there was Sinnet's esoteric Buddhism. The book was written at the time when Blavatsky, after all the happenings of which I have told you, had already been driven into the one-sided sphere of influence of those Indian occultists who belonged to the left and had special aims of their own. Hence, teachings relating to human nature and to reincarnation and karma are given in esoteric Buddhism. It is therefore written in opposition to those who wanted the knowledge of reincarnation to be allowed to disappear. This will also show you how vehemently the conflict was being waged. Blavatsky had been connected with American spiritualists who wanted to let the teaching of reincarnation disappear. Mediumship was a means to this end, and that method was adopted. As Blavatsky revolted, she was expelled and came more and more under the sway of the Indian occultists. She was driven into their hands. This led to a conflict between American and Indian views in the sphere of occultism. On one side there was the strong tendency to let the teaching of reincarnation vanish from the scene, and on the other the urge to bring this teaching into the world, but in a form that took advantage of the materialistic leanings of the nineteenth century. This was a possibility if the teaching about the eighth sphere was presented as Sinnet presented it in esoteric Buddhism. There are a number of other facts of perhaps sufficient importance to be at least indicated. I do not want to shock you by what I am saying, but to explain the spiritual principle our own standpoint is based upon. Two difficulties had arisen as a result of the way in which the teaching about the eighth sphere had been presented in Sinnet's book. Blavatsky had created one of the difficulties herself. She knew that what Sinnet had written on this subject was false, but she also knew that she was in the hands of those who desired that the false teaching should be inculcated into humanity. Therefore she tried in a certain way, as you can read entitled The Secret Doctrine, to correct this conception of the eighth sphere and matters relevant to it. But she did this in such a way as to cause confusion. Hence there is a certain discrepancy between Sinnet's esoteric Buddhism and Blavatsky's secret doctrine. Blavatsky corrected it in a way that actually reinforced the bias of the left-wing Indian occultists. She tried by very peculiar means, as we shall presently see, to let more of the truth come to light in order to overshadow the error. 
She was therefore obliged in turn to create a counterweight, for from the standpoint of the Indian occultists it would have been very dangerous to allow the truth to be revealed in this way. She set out to create this counterweight, we shall gradually understand it, by pursuing a definite course. She came nearer to the truth about the eighth sphere than Sinnott had done, but she created the counterweight by venting in the secret doctrine a volley of abuse on the subjects of Judaism and Christianity, interwoven with certain teaching about the nature of Jehovah. In this way, what she had put right on one side she tried to balance out on the other, so that too much harm would not be done to the stream of Indian occultism. She knew that such truths do not remain theory or without effect, as do other theories relating to the physical plane. Theories, like those we are speaking of, penetrate into the life of soul and color perceptions and feelings. Indeed, they were calculated to turn souls in a certain direction. The whole affair is an inextricable jumble of fallacies. Madame Blavatsky herself did not, of course, know that the driving forces behind both tendencies were directed toward a special aim. The special aim was to foster this particular kind of error instead of the truth. In general, the aim was to foster errors of a type that would be advantageous to the materialism of the nineteenth century, errors that could be possible only at the high tide of materialism. There you have one side of the situation. On the other side, Sinnott's esoteric Buddhism, and in a certain respect Blavatsky's secret doctrine too, made a great impression, especially upon those who were really intent upon seeking the spiritual world, and that again naturally alarmed those who had cause to be alarmed at the possibility that an occult movement with such an oriental trend should appear. Now a number of senseless polemics have been leveled against Blavatsky, against Sinnott, against the Theosophical movement, and so forth. But among the different attacks made upon the Theosophical movement in the course of time, there have been some emanating from well-formed but biased quarters. The tendency of Anglican spiritual life was that as little as possible of Oriental teaching, as little as possible of any teaching concerning repeated earthly lives, should be allowed to come to the knowledge of the public. There is no doubt that among those who from the standpoint that here lay a danger to Christianity in Europe set themselves in opposition to the Oriental teachings were people who may be called Christian esotericists. The Christian esotericists connected with the High Church Party in England set themselves in opposition with this in mind. From this side, then, there came declarations calculated both to stem the current of Oriental thought proceeding from Blavatsky and Sinnott and to foster in the outside world esotericism of a kind intended to conceal the teaching of repeated earthly lives. To amalgamate a certain trend of thought with the form of Christianity customary in Europe, such was the aim of this group. It desired that the teaching of repeated earthly lives, which it was essential to make known, should be left out of account. 
and the method, similar to that used in the case of Synod, was put into operation. I must emphasize once again that those who made the corresponding preparations were probably not fully aware that they were tools of the individuality who stood behind them. Just as Sinnott knew nothing of the real tendency of those who stood behind him, neither did those who were connected with the high church party know much of what lay behind the whole affair. But they realized that what they were doing could not fail to make a great impression upon the occultists, and that determined them to support the direction of those who were intent upon eliminating the teaching of repeated lives. After these preliminary indications, let us turn to consider the particular fallacy contained in Sinnott's book. We find there the teaching that the eighth sphere makes itself manifest above all in the moon, that the moon with its influences and effects upon humanity is, in fact, the eighth sphere. Expressed in this form, this is a fallacy. Here is the essential point. If we started from Sinnott's assumption in investigating the moon's influences, we would be trapped in a grave error arising from materialistic thinking and not easily fathomed. What then was necessary if the truth were to be fostered? It was necessary to point out the true state of things in regard to the moon as opposed to the erroneous presentation in Sinnott's esoteric Buddhism. Read Chapter 4, dealing with this subject in the book An Outline of Esoteric Science, title An Outline of Esoteric Science. It was my purpose there to describe how the moon left the earth. I attached particular importance to the fact that the exit of the moon should be described with the utmost clarity. It was essential to indicate the truth here as opposed to the fallacy. Thus, in order to counter the Indian influence, it was necessary to describe in all clarity the function of the moon in the evolution of the earth. That was one of the things that had to be done in my book. The other thing that was necessary will be clear to you if you think of the people of whom I have just spoken. These were people who were also under a certain leadership and who did not wish the teaching of repeated earthly lives to be spread among humanity as a truth, because they considered that it would alter the form of Christianity customary in Europe and America. They went to work in a particular way, a way that is clearly discernible if we picture how these occultists set about refuting Sinnott's esoteric Buddhism. The occultists connected with the High Church Party took upon themselves the task of refuting Sinnott's esoteric Buddhism and Blavatsky's secret doctrine. In point of fact, a great deal of good was done in regard to Sinnott's statement about the Eighth Sphere, for the falsity of the indications about the Eighth Sphere and the Moon was emphasized very poignantly from that side. But at the same time, this was combined with another teaching, it was stated from that quarter that humanity is not connected with the moon in the way described by Sinnott, but in a different way. True, this different way was not specifically described, but it could be perceived 
that these people had realized something about the process of the moon's departure from the earth as I presented it in Title Esoteric Science. But now they laid great stress on the following. They said the earth, and above all humanity, was never connected with the other planets of the solar system. Therefore humanity could never have lived on Mercury, Venus, Mars or Jupiter. From that side, therefore, it was sharply emphasized that there is no connection between the human being and the planets of the solar system. But this is the best way to instill yet another fallacy into the world and to spread the greatest possible obscurity over the teaching of reincarnation. The other fallacy, Sinnott's fallacy, actually furthers the teaching of reincarnation in a sense, but in a materialistic form. The fallacy asserting that during earthly evolution human beings have never had any connection with Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and so forth was not actually spread abroad by those who gave it publicity, but by those who stood behind them. It was they who worked upon human souls in such a way that these souls could never seriously believe in reincarnation. What therefore was strongly emphasized from this quarter was that, human, was that human beings had never been connected with any planet other than the Earth, nor ever had anything to do with the other planets of the solar system. If we think about a human being as he, she is, between birth and death, we can envisage that in relation to evolution the human being stands under the aegis of the spirits of form. This too is set forth in title Esoteric Science. But if we then think of life from death to the next birth, another essential fact must be taken into consideration. The spheres of activity of these spirits of form fall, as it were, into seven categories, only one of which is allotted to Jehovah, the one concerned primarily with life between birth and death. The six other categories of the spirits of form guide life between death and a new birth. We can discover this, however, only if we investigate life between death and a new birth. Just as Jehovah has to do with the earth and actually made the sacrifice of going to the moon in order to neutralize from there certain things in earthly evolution, so the other spirits of form likewise have to do with the other planets. But this fact must be hidden, concealed, if you want the conception of repeated earthly lives to be withheld from human beings. Moreover, the concealment must be really effective. It must be brought about in such a way that people do not become alive to the secret I have just spoken of. For if they are diverted from a true view of life between death and a new birth, their attention will be drawn to life between birth and death and they will allow mediums to talk them into believing that life after death is simply a continuation of the life on earth. In this domain a tremendous amount of scheming goes on. Occultists who undertake anything of this nature naturally know, if they belong to the left, which direction to turn thoughts to bring feelings into line and thus divert attention from certain secrets and ensure that these do not come to light. That is what actually happened, and you can read about it in the relevant literature. 
you will often find the statement that humanity has nothing to do with the other planets of our solar system. This implies, of course, that humanity has nothing to do with the guiding spirits of these planets of our solar system. This was emphasized to make sure people would never evolve concepts that would lead them to realize the credibility of the teaching of reincarnation. The other task was to present the truth as opposed to the fallacy. If you read Esoteric Science, you will again find emphasis laid upon the fact that human beings must leave the earth so that part of their lives will be spent on other planets. Esoteric Science deals in detail on the one hand with humanity's relation to the moon and on the other with its relation to the planets. What these people set out to achieve can be indicated briefly by saying that they too made use of the materialistic outlook of the time. For if you present things as I have done in esoteric science, you will show what has to be accomplished in earthly evolution through its connection with the planets. For the other planets too belong to the evolution of the earth. To the materialist, the planets move around in space as mere clods of matter. Therefore, when describing their functions in the spiritual evolution of humanity, I had to go back to their spiritual realities, to the spirits of the planets. You see from this how the spiritual movement was wedged, as it were, between two set purposes, one intent upon distorting the truth concerning the moon, the other upon distorting the truth concerning the planets. Such was the situation at the end of the nineteenth century. H. P. Blavatsky and Sinnott were to distort the truth about the moon. The others set out to distort the truth about the connection of the planets with the evolution of the earth. Do not imagine that it is an easy position to be wedged between two such currents. For here we have to do with occultism, and where occultism is involved a stronger force is necessary for grasping its truths and for grasping the ordinary truths of the physical plane. Furthermore, there a far stronger force of deception, which it is essential to see through, is also at work. It is not easy to be in such a position, because of the strong force required to counter it. On the one side the truth about the moon is veiled by the distortion, and on the other the truth about the planets. One was wedged between two fallacies committed in the interests of materialism. First it was a matter of reckoning with the materialism emanating from the oriental side, which was responsible for promoting the fallacy about the moon in order to introduce the oriental teaching of reincarnation. The teaching of the fact of reincarnation was of course correct, but we shall soon see what a strong concession had been made to materialism in esoteric Buddhism. On the other hand, there was the desire that a certain form of Catholic esotericism should be protected from the assault of the Indian influence. There, more than ever, the tendency was at work to allow all spiritual reality connected with the evolution of the planetary system as a whole to be submerged in materialism. The mission of spiritual science was wedged between these two currents. This was the situation which one was confronted with. 
Everywhere there were strong forces at work intent upon making the one or the other influence effective. Now, I have to show you in what respect this distorted teaching about the moon is a very special concession to materialism and how the way it was then corrected by H.P. Blavatsky actually made matters even worse. It did so because on the one side, with a great talent for occultism, which Sinnott did not possess, Blavatsky amended his statements, but on the other side she made use of particular methods whereby the error could be preserved with even greater certainty. The first essential is to discern how far Sinnott's teaching about the Eighth Sphere is a fallacy. Here, you must keep firmly in mind the teaching regarding the whole process of the evolution of the Earth, namely the teaching that the planet Earth passed through the old Saturn, old Sun, and old Moon periods of evolution before entering its present stage. You must remind yourselves that the composition of the old Moon was essentially different from that of the Earth. The mineral kingdom was added for the first time during the earth period, and what constitutes the material world of the physical plane is entirely impregnated with the mineral element. All that you perceive in the plant, animal, and human kingdoms is the mineral element that has been impregnated into them. Your body is, in quotes, mineralized through and through. What is not mineral? The moon nature, the sun nature, is only occultly present there. We see only the mineral, the earthly. This must be firmly borne in mind, if starting from what humanity now actually is on the earth, we are to find the answer to the question, what is it in us that is the heritage of the old moon? The old moon human is present within human beings as we now are but in a form that must be pictured as containing nothing mineral whatever. If you envisage the earthly human such that you see only the mineral constituents, you must picture the moon human within. But there is nothing mineral in this moon human. Hence this moon human cannot be seen with physical eyes, but only with spiritual sight. A moon form underlies certain members of the physical human, is commingled within them, but this can be perceived only with the eye of clairvoyance. Needless to say, what is there, within, was present on the old moon, but just remember how it was seen on the old moon. It was seen through imaginative cognition in surging, undulating pictures. These are still present today but to behold them atavistic clairvoyance was then necessary. The old moon humans could be perceived only by atavistic clairvoyance, which in that era was the normal faculty of vision. Consequently, everything connected with this old moon evolution can also be seen only in imaginations, with ancient visionary clairvoyance, it must never be thought that the old moon human could be formed out of the mineral earth. This moon human was the product of the old moon, as it might be seen in imaginative clairvoyance. And so, in connection with the old moon, we must picture to ourselves that the whole environment was visible to the imaginative clairvoyance of the moon humans, just as our own environment with plants, animals, rivers, mountains, 
is visible to our physical eyes. We know that the forces contained in the old moon inevitably appear again in the Earth's evolutionary process, but that earthly evolution would have been doomed to perish, as I have shown in Esoteric Science, if these moon forces had not subsequently left. They could not have maintained their existence within the earthly forces. Remember that the whole planet Earth had to receive the mineral kingdom into itself, to be mineralized, as it were. While the moon formed part of the Earth, the moon forces were still within the Earth, but these forces had to be expelled. Hence the moon itself was obliged to separate from the Earth, because it could not have existed in the mineralized Earth, and human beings would not have been able to evolve as they have actually evolved. I have spoken of all this in esoteric science. But now recall exactly what I have told you today, that this moon can be perceived only through imaginative clairvoyance. If therefore you picture how humans developed as earthly humanity, with a constitution organized for perception with physical senses, you will understand that such human beings could never have beheld the departure of the moon. The departure of the moon and also its position out there in the cosmos could only have been apprehended clairvoyantly. Human beings were so organized that the whole process of the departure of the moon could have been seen only with clairvoyant sight. Therefore the influences then proceeding from the moon could only have been those of the old moon. That is to say, influences that worked in such a way upon human beings that, among other things, imaginative clairvoyance would have been evoked in them. Try to imagine the situation in that ancient time. In quotes, human beings were to come into being, souls to come down from the planets and so forth. But the moon would have continued to work such that the forces in the descending human being would have been the same as were present in the old moon that preceded the earth. Nobody except one endowed with visionary clairvoyance could have seen this moon. Then, as a material phenomenon accompanying this process of the departure of the moon forces, something else came about. I have already told you how Yahweh, or Jehovah, is related to the moon. What happened was that through the connection of Yahweh with the moon, the moon was also made material, mineralized but with a much denser materiality than that of the earth. Therefore, what can be seen today as the physical moon, which can be assumed to contain a mineral element, is to be traced back to the deed of Yahweh, whereby certain elements were added to the old moon. Thereby, however, the old moon forces were crippled and now work in a quite different way. Had the moon remained unmineralized, its forces would have worked in such a way that its rays would always have evoked the old atavistic clairvoyance, and the effects of the moon upon the will would have made humans somnambulists in the most marked form. This was neutralized through the mineralization of the moon. The old forces can now no longer develop in such a way. This is a truth of tremendous importance, for now you will realize that the moon had to be mineralized so that it might not work in the old way. 
Thus, when speaking of the moon as a recapitulation of the old moon, we must speak of a celestial body that is not visible with physical eyes. This body is a concern of the spiritual world, albeit only the subconscious spiritual world that is perceptible to visionary clairvoyance. We must therefore speak of something spiritual if we are speaking of the recapitulation of the old moon. What is mineral in the present moon has been added to the spiritual and does not belong to the moon when the moon is referred to in the old sense. How was the materialism of the 19th century to be grappled with? Its adherents would certainly not believe that behind the material moon lies the very important remainder of the old non-mineralized moon. They would never believe such a thing. So a concession was made to materialism by speaking only of the physical materialized moon. Hence, when Sinnott spoke of the moon, he left out the spirit. In esoteric Buddhism, he merely says that the materiality of the moon is far denser than that of the earth. That is so, indeed it must be so. But that the occult reality I have indicated lies behind it, that fact he omits altogether. He therefore made the concession in that he speaks only of the materiality of the moon. But the spirituality behind the moon does not come into consideration It does not belong essentially to the earth, but is connected much more closely with the old moon than with the earth. This fact was completely veiled, and the consequence was of tremendous import. For Sinnott had thereby brought a true fact, that the moon has something to do with the eighth sphere, into an utterly false light and distorted it with great subtlety. He omits all mention of the spiritual aspect of the eighth sphere. He does not say that the eighth sphere, whose representative is alleged to be the moon, is what lies behind the moon. He calls what was actually placed there to neutralize, to counter the effects of the eighth sphere, the eighth sphere itself. As we have heard, the materiality of the moon is there in order to neutralize the eighth sphere, to render it ineffectual. People do not realize what the effect of the eighth sphere would be if materiality were taken away from the moon. The whole nature of the human soul would have become quite different on the earth, and that this has not happened is due to the fact that materiality of a greater density was incorporated into the moon. What actually makes the eighth sphere ineffectual, namely its materiality, Sinnott calls the eighth sphere. And what is actually the eighth sphere, namely the old moon forces, he obscures. A trick frequently used in occultism is to say something that is true fundamentally, but to put it in such a way that it is absolutely false. Forgive the paradox. It is false to say that the material moon is the eighth sphere, because actually it is the neutralizer of the eighth sphere. But it is quite correct that the, in quotes, Moon is the eighth sphere, because the eighth sphere is centered in the moon, is actually present up there. And now we have reached the point where we can say more specifically, then has hitherto been possible what the eighth sphere is in reality. This is a matter most intimately connected with the spiritual aspect of evolution in the 19th century. The end of Lecture 11